I'm going to be reading from God's Word from Exodus chapter 19, and that can be found on page 76 of the Church Bibles. On the first day of the third month after the Israelites left Egypt, on that very day, they came to the desert of Sinai. After they set out from Rephidim, they entered the desert of Sinai, and Israel camped there in the desert in front of the mountain. Then Moses went up to God, and the Lord called to him from the mountain and said, This is what you are to say to the descendants of Jacob, and what you are to tell the people of Israel. You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt, and how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, if you obey me, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all nations you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words you are to speak to the Israelites. So Moses went back and summoned the elders of the people and set before them all the words the Lord had commanded him to speak. The people all responded together, we will do everything the Lord has said. So Moses brought their answer back to the Lord. The Lord said to Moses, I'm going to come to you in a dense cloud so that the people will hear me speaking with you and always put their trust in you. Then Moses told the Lord what the people had said. And the Lord said to Moses, go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow. Have them wash their clothes and be ready by the third day, because on that day the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. Put limits for the people around the mountain and tell them, be careful that you do not approach the mountain or touch the foot of it. Whoever touches the mountain is to be put to death. They are to be stoned or shot with arrows. Not a hand is to be laid on them. No person or animal shall be permitted to live. Only the, the ram's horn sounds, a long blast, may they approach the mountain. After Moses had gone down the mountain to the people, he consecrated them, and they washed their clothes. Then he said to the people, Prepare yourselves for the third day. Abstain from sexual relations. On the morning of the third day, there was thunder and lightning with a thick cloud over the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast. Everyone in the camp trembled, then Moses led the people out of the camp to meet with God, and they stood at the foot of the mountain. Mount Sinai was covered with smoke because the Lord descended on it in fire. The smoke billowed up from it like smoke from a furnace, and the whole mountain trembled violently. As the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and the voice of God answered him. The Lord descended to the top of Mount Sinai and called Moses to the top of the mountain. So Moses went up and the Lord said to him, Go down and warn the people so they do not force their way through to see the Lord, 
and many of them perish. Even the priests who approach the Lord must consecrate themselves or the Lord will break out against them. Moses said to the Lord, the people cannot come up Mount Sinai because you yourself warned us. Put limits around the mountain and set it apart as holy. The Lord replied, go down and bring Aaron up with you. But the priests and the people must not force their way through to come up to the Lord or he will break out against them. So Moses went down to the people and told them. Thank you, Charlie. As we come to uh, this passage, let's pray together. Be helpful. Just keep a finger in page 76 of your Bibles. Father, thank you that you are not a silent God, but a God who speaks to your people. And we pray that as we listen, you'll give us grace to hear and receive your holy word to be transformed by having you speak to us. Help us to wonder at your goodness and reflect it in our lives, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. In 1998, I bought a book called The Talk of the Town, written by Ardlo Hanlon. Now, Ardlo Hanlon was, at the time, I think probably my favorite comic actor. He had made his breakthrough in the show uh, Father Ted. You might know him more recently from uh, a show like Taskmaster. Uh, but in Father Ted, he played the, the hapless and childlike Father Dougal, who, when Ted would say something along the lines of, well, Dougal, you know, I think today anyone can be whatever they want. Dougal's reply is, can I still be a priest, Ted? Uh, and always he is uh, sort of slightly sort of bamboozled and harmless and confused. And so, of course, I assumed that this was true of Ardlo Hanlon himself. And I went uh, to buy his book expecting a kind of whimsical, funny uh, sort of parade through rural Ireland. How wrong I was. The Talk of the Town is probably the darkest novel I've ever read. It's often the way with comedians, isn't it? There's another side, there's a shadow side. But the book I thought I was holding in my hand and the book I was holding in my hand were not the same thing at all. Uh, And I suspect that with the book of Exodus, we're right in the middle of it here. Uh, And here in chapter 19 is the point at which we really begin to realize that this isn't the book we thought it was or at least that many of us probably thought it was. Uh, I don't know how you got on with the story so far, sort of, what should I call it, a pictogram, Uh, trying to find your way through uh, the first 11 chapters as they were depicted, Uh, the way that God freed his people from Israel. The book begins, from Israel, from Egypt, Uh, the, the, the book begins with the people in exile, slaves, oppressed, and they're crying out to God, and God in his enormous power, and his very great mercy comes and sets them free. He redeems them. Uh, And I suspect that perhaps if you attended Sunday school as a child, uh, if you have sort of read books of Bible stories, you think that that's what Exodus is about. And it sort of is. But actually that's not the center of gravity of the book. Really, chapter 19 is the center of gravity. This is the, the hinge around which it all pivots. This is the center. This is the heart of it. We come at the beginning of chapter 19 to a mountain. 
to a mountain variously called uh, in Exodus and in the Old Testament, either Sinai or Horeb or the mountain of the Lord. It is the place where God met with Moses back in chapter 3 where he was in the burning bush and he gave Moses the, the, the special covenant name by which to call him I am who I am. And here they are again at that mountain. And the next 59 chapters of the Bible take place at this mountain. That's more than half the book of Exodus. And it's in fact a sixth of all the historical books of the Old Testament take place in this place. At this moment, following on from this first day of the third month after they left Egypt. It's absolutely unique in the whole of the Old Testament that there is so much focus on one moment in time. Everything else happens at, at, at relatively breakneck speed. The only thing that's comparable in the whole of the Bible is the way that the Gospels give so much of their time and space to the last few weeks of Jesus' life. Why is that? Why is it that we reach the mountain and suddenly time almost stops as you're reading through? And we stay there for the next one and a half books, the rest of Exodus and all of Leviticus and all of Numbers. And Deuteronomy begins with God telling the people to move on from the mountain. Why? Well, I suspect that uh, the way that Exodus isn't the book that we expect it to be sort of reflects the way that being a Christian is not actually what we expect it to be or what we often think of it as being. Or, and even many of us who've been Christians a long time perhaps carry around in our heads this idea uh, of what it means to be a Christian that essentially it's a kind of, you might not ever put it in these sorts of terms, although looking in from the outside you might, a sort of lifestyle choice. A thing that we do that gives our lives sort of meaning that sets us free from the sort of mundanity of life, gives us an opportunity to experience life on a, uh, on, a, on a spiritual plane. And that much like other sort of wellness or spirituality options that are out there on the market, uh, being a Christian is something you can sort of, or, or Christian, Christianity or Jesus or, or the Bible, however you want to look at it, is something you sort of take off the shelf and say, well, this looks like it fits me quite well. But actually that's to miss the point. The whole structure of the Bible shows us that what we need if we're to understand how God sees himself and how God sees us and, 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 and what this book really represents, it's a bit like the sort of late medieval astronomer Nicolas Copernicus, who, who by his observations of the heavenly bodies said to the people around him, the sun doesn't revolve around the earth. Actually, the earth is not the fixed point at the center of the universe with everything kind of going around it, which uh, certainly medieval astronomers had assumed and the ancients. He said, no, actually, the, the earth revolves around the sun. Uh, and what we see in, in, in Exodus 19 is a sort of Copernican revolution where what we begin to realize is that the vision of reality laid out for us in the scriptures is one in which everything doesn't revolve around us. 
The world doesn't revolve around me. I'm not the fixed point at the center of the universe. And, and all of reality makes sense insofar as I can make sense of it uh, and, and is about me. It is fundamentally about God. He is the fixed point at the center of reality. And actually, the story of the world is about him. You get a hint of it, for instance, in uh, verse uh, 5. Although the whole earth is mine. Sorry, it's verse 7. No, it's not. I'll put my glasses on. I'm tired. Sorry. Um, Verse 5. It is verse 5. It's the end of verse 5. Although the whole earth is mine. God made the universe, and it belongs to him. And the story of the universe, fundamentally, at its heart, is about him. And the story of Exodus is not so much about the people coming out of Egypt as it is about the people coming to God. Look with me at verse 4. You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt and how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. The big journey in the Exodus is not so much the journey out of Egypt as it is the journey to God. It is that relationship with God that will define everything. He has bought them. And it's a beautiful image, isn't it? Carried you on eagle's wings. The idea of, it's, it's a bit like, and I'm sure this is why Tolkien uses the imagery, it's a bit like the, the, the image when the, where the eagles come and rescue uh, the, 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 the ring party and carry them to safety from a position of total hopelessness. And Tolkien's just picking up this idea of, uh, you know, God lifting his people and carrying them miraculously away from their slavery to himself. The heart of everything for the people of God is God. The heart of what it means to be a Christian person is a relationship with God himself. To be drawn in by the gravitational pull of the the center of all reality. To come into his orbit And that that is the highest goal that any human being could long for. He made the whole world, it is his. And yet, this is what he says to his people, I've drawn you to myself. You don't need to turn with me, but right at the uh, beginning of the last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation, which we started the year with, uh, he quotes, John quotes, from uh, this passage, Revelation Uh, Revelation chapter, Exodus chapter 19. Uh, And he says this, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and has made us to be a kingdom and priests to serve his God and Father, to him be glory and power forever and ever, amen. And then he quotes uh, from Exodus chapter three, I am the alpha and the omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the almighty so dotted around the church building and, and in the church center and, and everywhere you can look really, uh, you will see these cards which have our verse for the year on and that is our verse for the year. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. And it's no accident that that's our verse for the year because what we need as a church family and what we need as Christian people is to have that Copernican revolution, that that. that that, that understanding that in the end it is God who is at the heart of reality. 
and that our lives only make sense as they make sense in relation to him. He's not an option you take off the shelf. He's not a a way of life that, that fits people. He is the meaning of everything. And God says to his people, I have lifted you on eagle's wings and borne you to myself. You see, if that's true, then the sort of longing, the tugging that's there in your heart, that sort of sense of unease that we sometimes feel with the world, that sense that somehow uh, there's something we're yearning for that we haven't quite got. There's an appetite we've got that cannot be filled. And no matter what we try to shove into that, it, it, it doesn't work. It doesn't satisfy. Well, that would be why, wouldn't it? If God has made us for himself, then it's only in him that we can find rest for our souls. So there's the first reversal, I think, that we get at uh, Exodus 19. We're invited to stop seeing ourselves as the center of the story, to stop seeing even Moses and the people as the center of the story, but to see God as the center of the story. But in that very verse, verse 4, there's another reversal, and this one goes really deep too. Because look again at what he says. You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt and how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. What follows from that is that God is going to begin to set out the the, the covenant regulations, the law by which his people are to live. The next chapter, the chapter that Don will be preaching for us next week, chapter 20, is the chapter that contains the Ten Commandments, the laws by which God's people are to live. But it's striking, isn't it, that they're already his people. He's already redeemed them. He's already brought them to himself. So if we're in danger sometimes of thinking that uh, the life of faith is is sort of one option among many, it is, uh, you know, a a lifestyle choice. And God invites us to, to see that that is not so, but instead he is at the center. So in the same way, I think we, we see the structure of what it's like to have a relationship with God completely backwards too. So often, so naturally, we think that the way the world works is I obey, I keep the rules, I do what's required of me, and as a result, God will accept me. Now, I promise you that that is almost certainly the structure of your heart. That's almost certainly the way you see the world. Whenever I talk to people, you know, towards the end of life, and I say, are you ready to to meet God? What they say to me is, well, I hope so. I've tried my best. I've tried to live a good life. That's our natural response. We think when we get to the end, if there is a God, hopefully our good deeds will outweigh our bad deeds. I've tried to be a good person. But what you see here in Exodus 19 is God does give rules for his people to live by. There there are kind of ethical implications to knowing God, to loving God. But they're not the way in. They're not the way that you become accepted by God. They're not the way that you become part of his people. No, the rescue comes first. God's love comes first. God is the one who acts. God is the one who saves. 
I'm already accepted. And that is why, and we'll see in the chapters that come, that is why Christians uh, believe that we are required to hear God's word, to obey it, to live his way. Because we're already his people. Because of what Jesus has done. So the, the people of, uh, of Israel could see that uh, God had already saved them. They weren't going to sort of do good things in order to be a saved people. They already were. They'd already been rescued. They'd already been welcomed by God. They'd already been brought to God. They already were in relationship with God. God graciously, generously, freely calls people to himself. And then the ethical implications flow from that. It's sort of an aside, but it's, I, I think it's quite an interesting one. It's to do with verb forms in books in the New Testament. Does that sound interesting? Yeah, come on, tell us, Nick, please. Take the epistles, the letters that Paul writes to churches or to individuals related to churches. There's a, a verb form called the imperative. Uh, in Greek, it, it's also there in English, but it's not always so easy to see. Uh, but an imperative is an instruction. Go! That's not an instruction. I'm in, hoping that you'll obey right now. Uh, but nonetheless, uh, that is an imperative. Okay? There are no imperatives in the first half of any of Paul's letters. Or if there are, they're, they're only things like pay attention. There's no instruction about what to do. Paul's letters always begin with what God has already done for his people. And then the instructions, the imperatives, come in the second half of the book. Isn't that striking? That God has done all the hard work and say, this is how you should live. Not, hey, look, if you want to come to God, if you want to be uh, part of his kingdom, if you want to be welcomed into the family of God, well, then you need to meet this list of standards. Okay, I think we often think about um, faith as being a bit like a kind of university kind of entrance. You know, you've got to get the right grades. You've got to do well in the interview. You've got to impress. You've got to be a certain caliber of person. Well, well, it's not like that at all, is it? God has done all of it for his people. He's carried them on eagles' wings and brought them to himself. And now if they fully obey him and keep his covenant, then out of all the nations, he says, you'll be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you'll be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. It's an extraordinary vision that God gives Moses to speak to the Israelites. You, he says, will be my treasured possession. Even though the whole world is mine. And I suppose it comes back to the sort of question that he sometimes asks, what do you buy for the person who has everything? When I was a teenager, I thought it was hilarious to buy my brother a, a box, and on it it said, for the person who has everything, and then inside there was a little badge, and it said, I have everything. Um, he didn't think it was that funny or generous, and he was right. Ancient kings owned the whole kingdom. Even the people belonged to them. 
And they could dispose of them as they would. But they would also have a treasury. A place where they kept the things that were really precious to them. That really meant something to them. That somehow defined their identity. That was their treasure. And so they would have a place, and the place itself would either be called their treasure, or their treasure room, or their treasury. I just came across this week, and uh, someone asked Alison Steadman, the actress, what's your most treasured possession? And she said, it's, my, uh, it's John Lennon's signature. I got John Lennon's signature in 1962. And she gave her autograph book to John Lennon's friend, who got Lennon to sign it, and then who signed it himself, and then uh, put in brackets afterwards the words Beatles. And he gave her the book back and said, uh, I've, I've put the, the word there just so that, you know, in the future, if anyone asks you who, who Paul McCartney was, you'll be able to tell them. So she's got that wonderful memory, that piece of paper with John Lennon and Paul McCartney's signatures on it. And that's a treasured possession to a person who, in many ways, could buy or have whatever she might want. There is this thing that means something to her, that is precious, that you couldn't replace. And God says to his people, that is what you will be to me if you will live with my covenant, with this relationship that I'm setting up with you. You'll be my treasured possession. You'll be a kingdom of priests. All of you will represent God to the world. We'll have a direct relationship with God. You will, as a nation, be kings. Be royalty. Be the very family of God. And I suppose that's the point at which we begin to see the tension that is there all the way through Exodus and then all the way through the Old Testament. Which is that God desires to live with his people. God calls his people into a relationship with him. And yet what you see in the rest of chapter 19 is closeness and distance at the same time, isn't it? God calls his people to him, but at the same time he pushes them away. He says, I'll appear to you, but says, I'll appear in a thick cloud so you can't see me. He invites and, to some extent, terrifies at the same time. Uh, and, and the very climax of the book, I think, is in uh, chapter 40, when the, the tabernacle, which is like a mini kind of portable temple, is built, and God's glory comes to dwell there. Uh, and the last thing we're told is that the people of God all had to leave the tabernacle because the glory of God was there. So there's this tension in Exodus. How can this holy God live with people like us? And it's a tension that is not resolved until you get right to the very end almost of the history of the Bible with the life of Jesus. And this moment where time slows down again and a few weeks become several chapters as we're told about the last days of Jesus, uh, about his death on a cross in the place of his people so that Jesus has fulfilled not only what was needed to bring the people out of Egypt, so to speak, but also he's fulfilled all that the covenant demanded so that people who belong to him become that treasured possession, that holy nation. As we saw in Revelation 1, Peter says it as well in, in his first letter, 1 Peter chapter 2, he, he talks about how the church is this holy nation belonging to God, this royal priesthood. 
Every Christian is royalty, a member of God's royal family, a a priest, someone who has unfettered access to the presence of God. We'll be looking in the autumn, we'll be beginning to look at the book of Hebrews, which takes the Old Testament, and particularly the book of Exodus, and shows how Jesus fulfills it in detail so that we can understand what God spoke to us through those people of that time long ago. And how it's all pointing forward to Jesus. Listen to what he says about Exodus chapter 19 and about how different Jesus is. This is Hebrews chapter 12, verse 18. You've not come to a mountain that can be touched and that is burning with fire, to darkness, gloom, and storm, to a trumpet blast, Or to such a voice speaking words that those who heard it begged that no further word be spoken to them. Because they could not bear what was commanded. If even an animal touches the mountain, it must be stoned to death. The sight was so terrifying that Moses said, I'm trembling with fear. But you have come to Mount Zion. To the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. You have come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly. To the church of the firstborn whose names are written in heaven. You've come to God, the judge of all, to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Now, the language of blood may be confusing, and I don't propose to spend a long time trying to explain Hebrews 12 now. We'll do that when we come to Hebrews 12. But the big thing is, what what he's saying is, there's that tension in Exodus and that sort of sense that, you know, the people are being spoken to by God, but at the same time, they're desperate that God would stop speaking to them because they can't bear it and they have to keep away and and even the animals can't get close. And he says, but now you have been welcomed into God's city as God's people. You have come to a new covenant, a new relationship because of Jesus. So this is no longer this terrifying, shaking mountain, but the beautiful, peaceful city in which God and his people and his angels celebrate in joyful assembly. So Exodus 9 refocuses us. Exodus 19, sorry. It's been a long week. Exodus 19 refocuses us on who the story is about, it is about God. On how we come into that story by God's grace, by his generosity, he is the one who rescues. But Exodus 19 also sets up that tension which points us forward to Jesus. Jesus offers us more than Moses ever could Because Jesus has kept those rules that we'll see in Exodus 20 and in the chapters that follow. He's kept them for us. So that we, his people, truly are God's treasured possession. So if you think about, next time you see someone hunting autographs, think about Alison Steadman. Think about how great it would be to have Paul McCartney and John Lennon's signatures, even though you were only hoping to get Lennon's. What a treasure that is. 
And yet what Alison Stedman feels about that piece of paper is nothing to what God feels about you because of Jesus. The whole world belongs to him. And yet here, we stand in the middle of his treasure store. It's quite a thought, isn't it? Let's pray. Father, it's hard for us to see things your way. It's hard for us to remember that you're the center of everything. It's hard for us to remember that you're the one who saves, that it's not a matter of us being able to measure up to your standards because we would not have a hope. But Father, perhaps hardest of all is for us to imagine that we would actually be a treasured possession to you, genuinely precious and delightful, royal members of your royal family, priests with access to God, a face-to-face relationship with you. Father, it's hard for us to think like this, but we thank you for your promise of your Holy Spirit who makes these things real to us. And we pray that even now this morning as we pray and as we continue in our service of worship, will you meet with us by your Spirit and make these things real to us. In Jesus' name, amen.